turn with me to your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read the first 20 verses of Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning to read at verse 1, hear the word of God with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Thus far the word of God. Would you then also turn with me in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 52. Lord's Day 52, the last um, Lord's Day in the Catechism. And I want to alert you to the fact that although I'm going to read the entire Lord's Day, the sermon tonight will deal only with question and answer 127. The first question out of the three will deal with that. If you are still vacant a year from now, 52 Sundays from now, then we'll do the other half. But for now, I want to do Lord's Day 52, question and answer 127. And I remind you that this is your confession of faith as it is mine. What does the sixth petition mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means... We are so weak that we cannot stand on our own for a moment, and our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. 
thus far the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this evening. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Bowmanville with me this evening. Our starting point this evening needs to be, as our confession teaches, that we are saved to serve. We are saved to serve. We are saved not, first of all, to be blessed, but to be of blessing. God did not give his son to die for us. God did not nail his own son on the cross. God did not allow him to suffer the torments of hell just so that we could go to heaven in the sweet by and by. No. We have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light in order that what? In order that we would show forth the excellencies of God. In other words, the Christian, once having received the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit, once having been rescued from darkness, has become a soldier in the army of God, and spiritual warfare is now his daily duty. Listen to the words of Paul. Do I just read it? For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And in the petition before us this evening, we listen to Christ teach us to expect spiritual warfare in our Christian walk. My dear people, today so many churches promote a name it and claim it gospel. It's a false gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel. Prosperity theology is the belief among some religious organizations, I'm reluctant to call them church, such as the word of faith churches, who teach that financial blessing is God's will for every believer. And if the believer will do his part, their material wealth will increase. They argue that physical and spiritual well-being is always the will of God for every believer and that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's own material wealth. If you need an example of one promoting such unbiblical nonsense, I point you to Joel Osteen. Perhaps he's familiar to some of you. And even though Joel uses the word God more often than even, than even the word Jesus on occasion, he never, he never talks about sin and the cross as an alien concept to his teaching. He is positive and optimistic and assures you of prosperity if only you will believe. But he, but he does not seem to understand anything about suffering for the gospel and being persecuted for following Christ. And my dear people of God, a prosperity gospel message is not the language of the Bible. <coughs> In fact, the very opposite is true. Scripture teaches us, Scripture teaches Christians to expect trials, to expect trials and temptations and spiritual warfare. Follow this with me. Remember with me now that Satan as a fallen angel is the leader of those angels who, according to the Bible, kept not their first estate. And Satan is now the archdemon plotting against God and man. We need to understand that. 
Satan has waged war against the Christ and having been defeated at Golgotha, all of his venom now is directed towards the Christians individually and the Christian church collectively. We need to understand here that all of the ability and ingenuity Satan has, all of the ability and ingenuity that he has, that he has been given, Satan, with which he was called to serve God, he now uses against God, and his cunning, his craftiness, and his deceit is now directed especially against the children of God. And my dear children of God gathered with me here tonight, I never tire of explaining to anyone who would hear me. I never tire of explaining that Satan is not interested in the world. The world belongs to him already. The world is his. No, no. Satan is determined to destroy the church. And he attempts to do so by ruining individual members of Christ's congregation. So his quarrel, first of all, is with those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us to expect in our Christian walk. Not some kind of prosperity because you are a believer. Oh no, if you have embraced the Christ, Satan has his eye on you. Satan's quarrel is with you. His attack is focused entirely on believing Christians individually and collectively as church. And if you're not convinced of that, then let me point you to 2 Corinthians 11, where God informs us that Satan has been transformed into an angel of light to deceive the flock. Christ later warns his followers that there shall rise false Christs and false prophets who will show... Excuse me. who shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that were it possible, they would deceive even the elect. And again, he testifies through Paul, put on the whole armor of God that you, Christians, so that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. In other words, Paul warns the men and women of his day that they were not sufficiently cognizant of spiritual dangers. And it would be my conviction that it's even worse today than it was then. My dear people of God here in Salem, it is the burden of my own pastor's heart that oftentimes even we as Christians fail to take seriously the concept of a mighty spiritual force known as Satan. In our age of hurriedness and our preoccupation with things material, in our culture of a social superficial Christianity and spiritual shallowness, Spiritual foes are given wonderful opportunity more and more to threaten us as well. How fitting then that Christ teaches us as church also today to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I want to minister God's word to you this evening using as my simple theme, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We will see that, Christ, that the Christian is tempted by the devil the world and by his own flesh. The devil, the world, and his own fallen flesh. People of God, one day the disciples of Jesus came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he did. He says, when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, deliver us from the evil one. And note with me, first of all, as we read in Matthew chapter 6, 
that Christ does not teach us here to pray for preservation from a certain vague or general evil circumstances. No, in Matthew chapter 6, we clearly read that Jesus taught us that he is very specific. He says, deliver us from the evil one. He teaches us to pray for deliverance from the person of the evil one. And that thought needs to be paramount in our minds as we consider this petition this evening. Jesus is teaching us to pray for deliverance from the devil. The devil is a personal enemy. He is our opponent. He is our adversary. God himself speaks of him that way in 1 Peter 5 when he writes, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, your enemy, the adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeing who he can destroy. But in order for us to be vigilant, in order for us to resist the work of the evil one, we need to ask and answer the question, how does Satan work? What is his agenda? And what, if any, are his limits? Well, the Bible teaches us that evil spirits exert certain influences upon men and women, and these influences are always for evil. Of King Saul, we read that an evil spirit troubled him and moved him to raging deeds of violence. Satan is said to have penetrated the heart of Judas Iscariot. But as we say this, we need to take care that we understand that Judas gave himself over to his greed and temporal glory so that Satan, as it were, took complete possession of Judas as a willing instrument in Satan's schemes. The same was true of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. You know that story as well. They were responsible for their own sin, and the apostle holds them accountable. The apostle confronts him and asks, Ananias, why have you given Satan opportunity to lie to the Holy Spirit? We remember that also David, a man after God's own heart, was moved by Satan to number Israel. Precisely how Satan and his angels establish contact in the human heart cannot be adequately defined. Much of the spiritual realm lies beyond our understanding, and many questions will remain unanswered for us even this evening. But this much is known by us and needs to be understood by us. Satan finds his contact in our own human depraved nature, and he operates especially in connection with our own sinful weaknesses. In other words, he works through our sinful tendencies of pride, selfishness, anger, covetousness. Mighty people, God, walk with me for a moment. If your personal weakness is pride and haughtiness, then Satan will cater to that weakness in your life and puff you up, causing you to think better of yourself than you ought. If selfishness is your tendency, he will attempt to deceive you into thinking that self-denial is really unnecessary. If greed is your difficulty, he will tempt you to focus on every concern on the acquisition of more and more material goods. If dishonesty is your vice, he will convince you that they are only little white lies and after all you meant well with your untruths. If the sins of the flesh, morality, if that is your struggle, he will center your attention on things of the flesh and sensual desire, and he will, he will even present them to you as being harmless and innocent. Think with me of the many lives and marriages 
that have been shipwrecked and ruined, even among Christians who allowed themselves to be tempted. Think also of the many, especially young people, whose very souls are in danger because of their wrong use of the internet. My dear young people gathered with us this evening, if the dark side of the internet is a temptation for you, if pornography is a temptation for you, perhaps you should disconnect yourself from the cyber world for your very eternal soul is at stake. Why would you risk your eternal immortal soul? If your fuse is short and your temper is hot, Satan will seek to create situations where you will be tempted to give vent to your angry outbursts. If alcohol is your weakness, Satan will whisper in your ear that it's really not so bad and after all I've got it under control, even though your home and your family may be in shambles. People got our catechism teaches us that Satan will sift us in order to have us. And what I'm trying to say here is that Satan has your number. He knows you. And he knows your every weakness. And he focuses on those weaknesses in you. And he exploits them in you. And what is a weakness for one is not necessarily so for another. And Satan knows the difference he knows your individual weakness and he will take every opportunity to work on those weaknesses for his advantage and to your detriment. My dear precious people of God, our catechism speaks of satanic assaults. And by that we mean also satanic assaults on our peace of heart. For example, sometimes serious doubts and anxious fear cause the Christian to doubt his own state of grace and he fears that perhaps he or she really is not a child of God anymore or perhaps never has been. His sins rise up before him or her causing him to abandon his hope of redemption. Do you see what is happening? Satan penetrates our hearts causing our subjective hearts to doubt the objective promises of God given us in scripture to doubt God's promises in his word that's an assault of Satan and we would do well to guard against such assaults the Bible teaches us of demonic satanic influences and we do ourselves great harm and injury if we fail to take into account the scope of Satan's domain and his work his work is real the threat is real and the consequences is real and can be catastrophic. It's also true, of course, that oftentimes God allows a spiritual dryness or depression to overcome us because of our own failure. And we need to understand that as well. <laughs> when we refuse to seek him in faith and repentance and obedience, when we neglect worship, or when we fail to do regular devotions, when we refuse to pray, when we refuse to live close to the Lord, when we refuse to deal with sin in our lives, then God withdraws his grace for a season. And then God exposes us to Satan's assaults in order to shake us out of our complacency and to awaken us from our foolish lethargy. 
So frequently we too need to confess with David, while I kept guilty silence, my strength was spent with grief, thy hand was heavy on me, my soul found no relief. Even today we find believers crying out bitterly, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not answer me. We too need to plead with God, as did David. Oh Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We would be well served to pay close attention to the warning of our Lord when he said, Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. But there's more here. The Catechism also speaks of the temptation of the world. So we've dealt with the temptation of Satan, but also of the world. And, 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 and initially, that would puzzle us a little bit. How can the world tempt us to sin? After all, is the creation not the handiwork of God? Is the world not his? Do we not sing, this is my father's world, and in his hands everything is in it? Yes, indeed. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, but... But the word world is often used in scripture to identify the sinful inhabitants of the world. Or if you will, it speaks of those in the world who do not belong to their father God through Jesus Christ, but who as yet still belong to their father the devil. Jesus teaches us of such people in John 6 where we hear him passing a damning indictment upon the Pharisees. He says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the things of your father Abraham. But you want to kill me because you are of your father the devil. And so then there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan. And what the confession wants to remind us of is that Satan's children... Satan's children are enlisted and used by Satan to tempt the children of God. It's always been so. In the early New Testament church, the Christians were constantly confronted by those on the outside who ridiculed the believer for their rigid lifestyle and their inflexible moral standards, urging them, give a little, live a little, compromise a little. It's still so today. And that's why it is so crucial that we, and especially our children, know whose name they bear. And that therefore they need to know who they may have as close friends. And they especially need to know who they are allowed to date and marry. Our children need to be made aware of Satan's wiles in their dating practices. And, we need to, and they need to know that unbelievers are Satan's tool to draw us away from Christ. Parents, your children need to learn from you that to date and to fall in love with someone who does not love the Lord with them, to date and to fall in love with someone who does not share a like precious faith with them, is a distinct work of Satan that he uses to wrench the child out of the church and away from the Lord. Young people, you need to know that and you need to be on your guard against that. The world suggests that we are to loosen up. We're admonished about being so old-fashioned and puritanical. And again, if this invitation would always and only come from those who are 
obviously depraved, then we immediately recognize them as people who belong to another, another father. But that's not always the case. You see, Satan comes to us not with, with loud clanging noises or symbols. No, he comes in on slippered feet. Today, we're often confronted with those who would appear to be very pious people. They sometimes even appear from within our own circles, within our own families, even within the church. And such people seek to baptize secular things with some redeeming moral value and then call them Christians so that we can participate in them. For example, we see rock concerts becoming Christian rock concerts, as if such a thing even exists. Oh, the lyrics of the songs are, are of, of a so-called Christian rock concert may be different, but the words are drowned out by the beat. Whatever sanctified words may be used in the lyrics, they are drowned out by the deafening noise and the rhythm of the world. And so we see also worship services being rebaptized into contemporary worship services to make them more attractive, as if worship was intended for our pleasure rather than for God's glory. We see worship services being made into seeker services, as if any fallen man or woman or child is actually able to seek after God. We see secular counselors being baptized into Christian counseling. We see dances becoming Christian dances. And the list goes on and you can add to it for yourself. And all the while the believer is being bombarded and sometimes confused. And all the while Satan is waging war. Make no mistake. People of God, I do not need to tell you that modern Christianity is superficial. It is shallow and it is extremely weak. In many areas, we have completely lost our way. And because of our own lethargy, we are often unable to distinguish the world from the church. The antithesis, there's an old word we don't hear much of anymore. The antithesis between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness has been all but lost between us. Christian, Christian distinctiveness is no longer clear. There's often so little difference between the world and the church. Frequently, instead of the church going out into the world with her message of salvation, the world is allowed to creep into the church and the church herself becomes worldly. And what is even more tragic is that much of our failure in influencing the world can be directly attributed to our own lack of Christian distinctiveness. In so many areas, the church acts no different from the world. All too often, the Christian is quite able to compromise with the world. Many of God's people do not work hard for the coming of the kingdom in their hearts and in their homes since they have for such a long time already, they have been drinking from the fountains of the world and the world's standards have become commonplace in many areas and eventually there is little about us that would attract the world to joining with us. We frequently look so little different from the world and neither do we consistently and clearly act differently from the world and consequently there is little that distinguishes us and tragically there is then so little Christian distinctiveness in us that we no longer attract others to us and through us to the cross. We need to think about that. 
We need to do something about that. We need to repent about that. We need to remember Christ's admonition to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if a man loves the world, the Father is not in him. And that warning speaks also to you, young people among us this evening, if not especially to you. Love not the world. Do not try to walk in the world and in the church, for no man or young person can serve two masters. You cannot love the Lord and still try to live a worldly life. If Christ is in your heart, then there is no room for the things of the world. If your heart is filled with the things of the kingdom, then the things of the world will hold no interest for you. Where is now your heart? Is it with the church or is it with the world? And so we've heard that Christians are tempted by the devil and by the world, but the catechism goes on to define another sworn enemy of the Christian, namely our own flesh. And in the scripture, the term our own flesh usually means the sinful desires of the fallen human heart, or if you will, our own human fallen depravity as it continues to rear its ugly head in the life of the believer from the remnants of sin that still cling to us. Paul teaches us of that very clearly in Galatians 5 where he alerts us to the constant warfare, that battle going on between the spirit and the flesh. Pure God, we have seen the dreadful force of the devil and his hosts of darkness and now, and we know now of the daily temptation of the sinful world. But we may also not underestimate the alluring seductiveness of our own sinful flesh. So often we forget about or we underestimate the enemy within our own gates. Someone has once written, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Oh, how true, how true. We have met the enemy, and the enemy is us. Often the believer's most formidable opponent is, is his own sinful heart. The world and the devil can accomplish absolutely nothing. It, it, it is this enemy, it is, it is our own sinful heart, it is it our own sinful inclination and desire to sin that is the door through which the world and the devil is given opportunity for entrance. We need to understand that. The world and the devil can accomplish absolutely nothing without our cooperation. Allow me to illustrate. The most godless worldly video or CD or DVD will not enter your home unless you have a DVD player and unless you bring it into your home and watch it. The secular influences of your television set will not affect you unless you turn it on and tune into some things which you ought not to. The garbage on the internet cannot seduce you unless you subscribe to it and use it. Pornography, hard or soft core, will not come into your home unless you visit the websites that offer it. Sunday labor will not be a temptation for you unless you choose to involve yourself in that field of labor. Sexual immorality will not destroy your body, your life, your home, or your marriage unless you give it room. 
What I mean here is that without your own cooperation, Satan and the world has no access to you. We cannot flippantly say the devil made me do it, for the devil cannot make us do anything without our own cooperation, without our own consent, without our own sinful desire to sin. All the strength and the ingenuity of Satan or the world cannot, would not, could not, in the least move us to sin. Well, it is for us to pray with David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. But now in the context of all of this, a perplexing question disturbs us. We have learned that the world, the devil, and our own fallen flesh tempt us to sin. And now here in this petition, we pray to God that he would lead us not into temptation. <clears throat> How now are we to understand that? The devil tempts us, the world tempts us, our own hearts tempt us, tempt us to sin. And we know that and we understand that, but how can Jesus now say that his Father, the God of love, who insists of us a blameless, holy, sanctified life, how would he now also bring us into temptation? That sounds inconceivable to us. And yet that is what Christ here teaches us in laying this petition upon our lips. How must we interpret that? <coughs> well, our starting point here needs to be the knowledge that God does not desire us to sin. Nor does he take any pleasure in any temptations of Satan. The scripture clearly teaches us that God tempts no man. But God does lead his children into circumstances of life which would expose them to the onslaughts of the evil one, not because he delights in our yielding to sin, no, rather he does so in order that he might use that temptation to bless us, to strengthen us, and to or further his kingdom. And Peter God, therein lies the key for interpreting this petition. Jesus teaches us to pray that we may be spared all of these particular trials as we weave our way through the complexities of human life and living here below. And when we then take this petition on our lips, we beg of God, O oh, Father, spare me these temptations. But if it is thy will that these temptations must come my way for my own good, then I beg of thee to grant then that the evil one may not succeed in his devilish attempts to overtake me. Grant that in thy grace, in thy strength, in any temptation... I may be delivered from Satan and granted by the gracious aid of the Holy Spirit given me because of Jesus Christ. Grant, O oh Father, that I might gain the victory over temptation and sin. That's the meaning of this final petition of the Lord's Prayer. God permits temptations to come our way, but always with a gracious purpose and from his own holy motives perhaps to test our loyalty and confidence in him, perhaps to humble us when we harbor pride and self-confidence, perhaps to demonstrate his greatness before men, perhaps to strengthen us and qualify us for greater battles yet to come, perhaps to cause us to grow in grace, enabling us to praise him all the more. But whatever the temptation, whatever God's purpose, it's all given us 
in grace for our good and for his glory. Understood that way, then our temptations are friends to grace to help us on our road to God. Understood that way, then our temptations are friends to grace for which we ultimately will thank him for it was through such trials that God increases and strengthens our faith and our resolve. Congregation, serious things have been given us for our consideration this evening. Satan will continue to assault you. All of your life will be a struggle against sin, and the closer you seek to walk to the Lord, the greater the intensity of Satan's flaming arrows toward you. But do not be despondent nor discouraged, no. In fact, lift up your hearts and be of good courage. For when we take this confession upon our lips, we may confidently know that God never asks of us more than we can carry. And furthermore, God always grants the grace at the precise moment at which it is necessary for us to endure. When God then, for his purpose, for his glory, and for our benefit, allows us to be tempted, then with confidence we may say, Oh, Father, deliver me from this evil, for in thy strength we are already now more than conquerors. We are already now victorious over sin in Jesus Christ, who became sin for us. Shall we pray? Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. Oh, let me hear thee speaking in accents clear and still, above the storms of passion, the murmur of self-will. Oh, speak to reassure me, to hasten to control. Oh, speak and make me listen, thou guardian of